Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Welcome to Episode 3 of Season 2. We have quite a few new subscribers this season, so welcome to our community here. This podcast is all about the triggers and relational patterns that can get us stuck, and it's these triggers and stuck patterns that we call anxiety. So anxiety isn't simply worry or fear, it can be any response that keeps us from being fully present to people and also to God. So this podcast helps name the triggers and helps us notice the recurring patterns, and then hopefully we give you tools to break those patterns. One of the tools is bringing a guest on the show, but before we get to today's guest, I'd like to ask a favor. We're a small but growing and very committed community here on this podcast. I've already heard from several of you about interviews you like or a tool that's been helpful, and it's really encouraging to hear from our listeners. You can help us by taking a minute and leaving an honest review on iTunes, or by retweeting an episode or sending it to a friend you think might benefit. That'll really help us spread the word. Also, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at the handle at Steve Cusswords, or you can join our Managing Leadership Anxiety Facebook page, and that way you'll keep up with every episode and every resource that we provide. Okay, now to our guest. Laura Turner is a writer living in San Francisco. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Poli Sci from Westmont College, and also a Master's in Fine Art in Creative Nonfiction from Seattle Pacific University. Creative nonfiction is the perfect description for Laura's work. She's a gifted writer, and she's published several poignant articles on her own relationship to anxiety. And in fact, she's currently working on a full-length book to be published about anxiety. Laura was kind to answer my gauntlet of questions, but before we went there, I asked her to teach us about a disorder known as generalized anxiety disorder. Laura has it, and I asked her to explain what it is. As more of a visual person, I sometimes think of it uh, a little bit like a cloud or fog, uh, which is appropriate, living in San Francisco. Um, With generalized anxiety disorder, there is a kind of uh, pervasive sense that things will go wrong. You're just not sure how or when or why. There obviously are a lot of physical components to it and a lot of great descriptions that I can't quite do justice since I'm not a doctor or a psychologist. But, um, you know, there are specific fears and phobias that people have, and you can have those if you have generalized anxiety disorder. But mostly, I think of it as kind of a little cloud that follows you around everywhere you go and tells you uh, the sun's not going to shine today. It's probably not going to shine tomorrow. You should really just get used to always being prepared for rain and bad weather. Um, What that means in a non-metaphorical sense is that there's a free-floating fear um, that I have that people with generalized anxiety disorder have that uh, kind of that anything that can go wrong probably will and that it's our job to prepare for the worst-case scenario and that by worrying, we are in some way, um, preparing ourselves for it. So it sounds, you know, very counterintuitive in a lot of ways. It is definitely, um, not the best way to have a joyful, light, freedom filled life or day. But I think it also makes a kind of sense, um, in that 
it really gets reinforced when things go wrong. Um, I find that anxious people are often really great in a crisis because we've been preparing for it all the time. Like we're always just ready um, when things go wrong to jump in and try to fix things or roll with it. Um, but it, it is just kind of this pervasive sense of free floating fear that can attach itself and does attach itself to any and every sphere of life. You know, this podcast is mostly focused on, I guess, what I call chronic anxiety, like low level, ever present relational tension and things like that. But what what you're describing is definitely more of an acute anxiety. Um, how how do you know the difference for somebody between things that they just worry about versus this generalized, like an, it's an actual disorder that should be treated? One of the first things there is obviously it always helps to check in with a therapist. Um, so I think that's a great way if you kind of think, oh, my worry might be tipping the scales over into something more acute. Um, there are people who are really helpful in identifying that. I think my best way of explaining and understanding that is a sense of proportion. Everybody, everybody worries about things. Um, you know, even the most sort of laid back people who we know have things that they worry about. I think that when our worry is far out of proportion to reality, that's when we tip over into something like generalized anxiety disorder or um, anxious thinking. And so what I mean by that is, you know, one of the things I will worry about um, is like, this is a pretty intense one, but I'll think sometimes what if everyone I know and everyone I love were to suddenly die in a plane crash or a car crash or something happened and on the same day they all died I would need to really work hard in my life to be prepared for that I would need to make sure that I was able to take care of myself and do everything I needed to do without anyone that I know or love helping me um that is entirely unlikely it it would be shocking and wild if something like that happened but my mind will kind of um go there and tell me in a self-protective way that I need to work on it. So I think that's the main question is the question of degree or proportion. If I'm worried about, you know, when I ask for a raise at work, I might not get it. Um, or my parent who's sick with cancer might pass away. Those worries are very much in proportion to reality. I think it's when we get into worrying in degrees that are just not realistic that we start to encounter, you know, the anxiety disorder world. Okay, yeah, so in that example, like it really is possible statistically that what you're worried about could happen, but it it sounds like you're saying yeah. that you're giving it way too much weight. There's way you're giving it too much probability yes. when really it's extremely slim. Yes, I think that's very true. And I'll start to sort of emotionally prepare myself for the death of everyone I love, which is just a terrible way to live. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. not there's not freedom in that. There's not lightness or joy in that. Um, and, the, and there's no preparing for it. You know, I think part of anxiety, the lie is you can prepare for something by worrying about it enough. And, mm -hmm. um, I've never actually found that to be the case, but I do think one of the most important things I have learned in my journey with anxiety is that anxiety is there for a reason. And it's often because you want to protect yourself. Um, you know, and that that's important. It's, 
something because we can be so uh, people who struggle with anxiety can also struggle with shame around it or feeling like we should be doing things differently. And one of the most important things I've heard, particularly from a therapist who I saw was the importance of kind of um, recognizing that our anxiety is trying to do something good for us. It's just, it's just not that it, it, it doesn't know what to do. Mm, like it needs to be channeled to be useful. Otherwise it just wreaks havoc. Yes, it does. It wreaks havoc. Exactly. How old were you when you first learned you had this? I was probably 18 or 19 when I first heard uh, the the phrase generalized anxiety disorder. I think that was when I first recognized, um, you know, a name for what I was dealing with. But I certainly had known about myself that I was... Uh, a warrior or often nervous from a very young age, probably seven or eight years old. I remember starting back to school after the summer and having a really hard time with that adjustment, worrying about would I make new friends? Would my old friends still like me? Would it be okay? So while it took several years for me to sort of get to the place that I knew what was going on and that it had a name, um, I think I knew for a long time that there was something about me that was that was prone to worry. And so when you were actually given that diagnosis, was your initial reaction uh, freeing or was it more embarrassing or shameful? Mm. That's a great question. I have to think there probably were both, both components to it. Um, but I think in the moment, I remember being in that therapist's office uh, the summer after I graduated high school and being really glad to hear that what I was dealing with had a name because it meant that it wasn't just me. Um, and I continue to find that that's one of the most helpful things in my experience with anxiety is just knowing I'm not alone. And I think, you know, that's true with anxiety. That's true with so much um, in our lives, in our lives as people of faith. Like there's just so many ways that we can think that we are alone in what we think and feel because we're the only ones thinking and feeling it as far as we know. And so once I kind of found out, okay, there's a name for this, it's anxiety, there are other people who deal with it, um, I felt a little bit less alone and a little bit less weird. Like I just felt like, okay, there are other people like me. Um, maybe I can find them. Maybe I can talk to them. And at the very least, I can know I'm not the only one who's feeling this way. And that's powerful. Yeah, I can really relate to that. I I uh, was with a therapist a couple of years ago, and he diagnosed me as an HSP, a highly sensitive person. Mm, yeah. And I've I've always known that I'm sensitive, but I tend to cover it, you know, with certainty or any number of ways. Mm -hmm. And it, I had that same reaction you had. Like it, it um, made me feel more empowered than than labeled. Yeah. And I think this is where labels can be very helpful and important. I mean, we don't want them to restrict or restrain us, but they can help to explain things. Um, I love the book, The Highly Sensitive Person. I found that incredibly helpful too. And sort of knowing that you are part of a tribe or a group of people can be really empowering, even if it is something you'd rather not be part of. Yeah, right on. Yeah. Or at least something you have to mitigate or, or work on. It's mm -hmm. still, yeah, that's, that's great. Okay, so you've been very public about uh, how medicine has helped. Could you yeah. just tell our listeners how um, medical intervention has been helpful for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think part of what was um, 
important for me is I was very much um, part of a, you know, family and group of friends growing up where I was able to talk a lot about anxiety and where taking medication, even in, um, you know, a, a faith community was never shamed or looked down on. Um, so I wasn't starting with a place of feeling like I shouldn't have to take medication. And that was really helpful to me. I know that there are a lot of people who um, start from a place of feeling like there's something wrong with them if they have to take medication. And, you know, there's something wrong with all of us to a degree, but there's also a lot of real help available. And the more research I've done about how things like neurotransmitters and hormones affect the body, which includes the mind, which is where anxiety works, but anxiety is also very physical, especially for me, um, the more I think it's just really important, even if you don't end up taking medication, to kind of understand how anxiety presents itself in the body. And for me, it's always been kind of a tightness in my chest. Um, maybe feelings of fluttering in my stomach. Sometimes I have a hard time just taking a deep breath. Um, and it, it helps me a lot to think that, you know, those physical symptoms can often require physical or medical help or intervention. So um, I've tried a couple of different SSRIs, which are real common for anxiety or depression um, or kind of other things, but those have been helpful. And then some of them have not worked out. And so just working with a good psychiatrist to kind of figure out what my right dosage is and what the right medication is going to be has been helpful. I've been on that on an SSRI since I was probably 20 years old, um, different ones and different dosages. But that's been really helpful to me in just kind of dealing with the day-to-day -day anxiety, um, the really mundane and hard daily stuff. And then I've also uh, went through a, a really tough period of about two years where I had three miscarriages in nine months while we were trying to get pregnant. And that was just a really hard uh, experience. And then I got pregnant um, and we had a baby and he's wonderful, but the pregnancy itself was just so hard. And both in terms of sort of being, I was nauseous and throwing up almost every day for nine months. Um, and then I was also very worried about what was going to happen when the baby be healthy and started to have panic attacks really regularly throughout the pregnancy. Um, and so while I was pregnant, I actually was on a medication on Ativan on a very small dose and kind of under the supervision of a reproductive psychiatrist, uh, it was a unique circumstance, but I'm really thankful to have found someone who was up to date on research and was saying, you know, all research shows this is safe to take during pregnancy. Um, and that was one of the hardest and darkest times, I would say, of anxiety that I've gone through the most acute, difficult, sort of fearful period of my life. And um, even with that medication, it was it was very hard. And without that help, um, I think I just would have been a shell of a person. So I'm, I'm really thankful for the help I've had there. And then as I've continued to deal with panic since his birth, since Chance's birth, um, I still occasionally will take an Ativan here and there. And I'm working with a therapist and a psychiatrist now to kind of think through ways to adjust that dose and my SSRI. So I, I'm pretty open when it comes to talking about medication. And I think that it's just a helpful thing to discuss. I, I would like to just hear you have a word for, for somebody who's listening to this. Maybe they're a person mm -hmm. of faith, maybe they're a Christian or another faith, and they're thinking to themselves either, 
taking medicine is a sign of weakness or taking medicine means I'm not trusting God enough, it, it would be great just to hear you give a word mm-hmm. to them at this point. Yeah, gosh, I, I would love to. Um, one of the things I find most helpful in this area, there's a book by a, a theologian professor named Lou Smeads, who I just love and find incredibly helpful. He taught at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena for most of his career and um, you know, incredible man of God, incredible faith. Um, and he wrote in his book towards the end of his life, his memoir called My God and I, um, which is just a great title about how he dealt with depression. And he talked about, and this just kind of chokes me up sometimes because I think it's so lovely. He talks about how during his time of deepest depression, um, that he would pray and he said that Jesus would come to him in the morning uh, in the form of a small pill that he would take and that would clear out, I think the phrase he used was the cobwebs of depression in his mind on a daily basis. And there's something so powerful um, to me as a person who deals with anxiety and as a person of faith in terms of really believing that Jesus can come to us in so many different ways and through so many different uh, mediums, through people, through books, you know, um, through nature, but that Jesus can also come to us through medication and technology and research. Um, And I think that for most people of faith, the thought of taking uh, a medication when we are sick, taking Tylenol or ibuprofen when we have a fever, uh, you know, taking chemotherapy when we have cancer, taking um, insulin for a diabetic, wouldn't, we wouldn't bat an eye at that. We would praise God for the advances in medicine. We would be thankful that that was available. Um, We wouldn't try to just knuckle through it and tell ourselves that uh, it was really important to have faith to do it right. But for some reason, when it comes to um, the life of the mind, we start to tell ourselves that we should be able to do it by ourselves. And that word should, I think, just gets us in so much trouble with God. Um, Because I don't think God is a God who tells us you know, what we should do before we can come to him. I think he tells us to come to him first. And one of the ways that he um, helps us is through advances in medicine, is through wisdom that has been gleaned over decades and centuries. Um, And I think to sort of go it alone and only take medication and think that that's going to fix everything, you know, that's not the right way to do it. But no one's recommending that. I think to lean on our community, to pray, to have conversations, to exercise, to find a therapist. Um, All of these are really, really good and important pieces of working on anxiety and medications. Another piece of that, it usually doesn't cure it. Um, And so we still submit ourselves to God. It's not saying we're going to trust in medicine instead of God. It's saying we're trusting in God. And these are all of the incredible options he's given before us. Um, And then I also think going back to just the, you know, there really is a very real physical component to things like anxiety and depression that has to do with things like neurotransmitters. And um, there are a lot of reasons why we overproduce or underproduce there. And so understanding the medical side of it has actually been very helpful for me um, to sort of say, okay, now I, I understand why my body needs some help in this arena. Yeah, there's you. You said a lot just then, and and yeah. uh, it's it's interesting listening to you because it stirs up so much in me. Uh, Lewis Meads, I mm-hmm. I just 
Hearing the name Lou Smeads just brings a a Mm. visceral reaction for me. And I I remember that quote you're mentioning. Mm -hmm. And I I keep it almost in my brain where he says, yeah, every morning Jesus shows up. And I think he even named, I think he said it was was a program. Yep. Yep. Boy, that was a provocative, uh, freeing statement. The, The other thing, though, you said, Laura, that I really appreciate, and I don't want us to move past, because I thought it was a profound moment where you said, when we, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, I'm sorry, but you said something about when we bring the shoulds into our life, it makes uh, God, ups, I'm, I'm butchering it, I should just make you say it again, but you, <laughs> okay. you connected the idea that the shoulds disappoint God. And I think that's brilliant because I think most people who are full of shoulds and oughts think that those are coming from God. Oh, Could yes, you say I, a little more about that? I'd love to just camp on that for a minute. Yeah, well, yeah, and I'd love to hear some of how that's played out for you. Um, I'm I'm saying it as much to myself as anyone. I think is important to kind of know because I am also full of shoulds and oughts, and um, I can certainly imagine that what God wants is for me to, uh, you know, do better, be better, improve, always be working on myself, be able to sort of handle the hardships of life without any help or intervention. Um, And I have a tendency to confuse, you know, my voice with God's voice because uh, I can be really harsh and critical and sometimes think that my own internal dialogue must somehow be God's, um, which is obviously, you know, a a terrible idea. I'm really thankful that my voice is nowhere like God's voice. But I think of how... um, you know, when I read the Gospels and learn about who Jesus was, he wanted everybody to come to him. And it wasn't that he wanted them all to stay just as they were and and never change. And there, there was a lot that Jesus sort of asked of his followers. Um, but he wanted people to come to him and to ask things of him and to trust him and to surrender to him. Um, I think of the faith of the centurion who came to him and asked for healing and how Jesus was, you know, I think in Matthew, it is it says that Jesus was amazed by his faith, um, that we can come to God and ask things of him in faith, um, is one of the most important things about being a Christian. And yet I work myself up so often to think that Jesus doesn't want me to ask things of him because I should be able to provide them for myself. And I just don't see that anywhere in the gospel. I see that in our culture. Um, you know, I see that in, in the Western world and I see that in America in particular and in San Francisco where I live this sense that we should be able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to not need God or need anyone else. And I think that that's an incredible lie. I think that there's a lot of evil in that. And I think that the God who loves us and initiates a relationship with us, the God who sent his son, um, doesn't want for us to spend a lot of time thinking of what we should do better. I think he wants us to surrender to him. And there's a lot of freedom in that, um, but it's hard work. I find it to be really hard at least. Yeah, I agree. I found it to be hard work. I think I think in my own life, uh, I tend to form a God who is displeased in my mind. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like you described, it ends up becoming like a... a a tape loop in my head. And I think for me, it's, I think most of my faith journey 
is believing what God says over what I believe about myself mm. or what I believe yes. God says. I think it is that displacing, and I, I agree with you, it's work. Like for me to displace yeah. the shoulds and oughts with the grace of God, because, you know, since we're name dropping uh, authors here, Fred mm-hmm. Beekner, you mm-hmm. know, Fred, Fred Beekner says the gospel's too good to be true. That's why we can't mm. believe it. The, mm. And I think that's my journey, my struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I resonate with that. I think that's beautiful. And that's where people like Beekner and particularly for me, Henry Nowen have been so helpful mm. and I'm so thankful yeah. um, that they're part of that. They're part of that tradition that we get to follow in those footsteps. Yeah. So uh, you've been in church leadership. I know that you're a journalist now, but I remember in your early, earlier years, you served at a mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> here's a loaded question for you, Laura. How did being on a church staff exacerbate your anxiety? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. I think I've ever been asked that one before. Uh, um, so I mostly, you know, I've done a lot of, I born and raised in the church my whole life. So I've been in and out of churches um, since, you know, as long as I can remember. And I, um, I think that in many ways, both on staff and simply just as a member of church or growing up in the church, Um, there are a lot of ways that church culture can exacerbate anxiety. And particularly, I think a lot of that has to do with what we expect of people in the church and um, the amount of judgment in the church at times, Uh, the sense that, um, you know, we should be acting a certain way. Um, I remember I grew up with parents who were both, you know, both worked in the church and were pastors. and mostly really loved it and had a good experience in the church. But I do remember people outside of our family saying things about how we should be acting um, because we were the pastor's kids. And I didn't, my parents were actually very careful not to inflict that on us, which I'm very thankful for. But I think the expectations we have for certain people, especially kids in the church is just, um, are, are just quite harmful. And then I think there's also a way that within churches, there can be a sense that if there's something um, clearly or identifiably wrong with us in a way that we can point to, um, then the problem is a lack of faith. And I think that a lot of people who struggle with anxiety or depression have had this experience in churches where they've been told if they had the right faith, if they had more faith, if they prayed better, if they read the Bible more frequently, um, that they would not be anxious. They would not be depressed. And, um, you know, that is just, it's harmful stuff to hear and contend with. And luckily I didn't hear tons of that, but I did hear it often enough that I've certainly internalized that message at times. And one of the things I found most helpful there, um, you know, I remember people talking about, um, Jesus saying, do not worry about tomorrow and kind of using that as a, uh, what felt a little bit like a weapon to say like, well, you shouldn't be worrying. Jesus told us not to worry. Worrying must be a sin. And I remember at one point, someone I'm close with telling me that when Jesus said that it was so much more of an encouragement because Jesus knew the human condition and that the human heart was prone to worry, than it was a command. And, um, there were times, you know, when Jesus seemed fairly worried or stressed and, that is helpful to me to remember. Um, and one of the things I think 
that has been really good about being part of a church is eventually it's meant that I've found communities of people. The church I'm part of now in San Francisco has a support group for women who deal with anxiety and for men who deal with anxiety. And bringing that before God has been so cool. But church culture can also definitely kind of weaponize scripture in many, many ways. Um, one of which is this, you know, needing to do away with anxiety, um, which isn't helpful. Yeah, I like how you said that weaponizing scripture, and and you know, I think particularly I, where I first really saw it was in chaplaincy. I think the mm. most frequent time we weaponize scripture is when we ourselves are anxious. Like, so oh, the people yes. giving that stupid advice are actually mm-hmm. just quelling quelling their own anxiety by telling you that. Yes, I think that's so true. I've been reading a really wonderful um, book called The Soul of Shame by mm. Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson, um, yeah. Yeah, I think you, yeah. Um, it's fantastic. And one of the things that is just kind of blowing my mind a little bit is the connection between shame and anxiety. And then he also talks about how um, it's really people who are ashamed who shame others. And so when mm. I'm judging someone else, um, it's often coming out of my own sense of insecurity or judgment of myself, which I think is very true and hard to look at. That's part of that work, again, that we talked about that's ongoing and constant, but but so vitally important. Yeah. Okay. So now you're a, you're a full-time writer or you're a professional writer. Uh, g- give us a little insight into what goes on inside you before you send the final draft to be published? Hmm. You know, I think um, there's there's a lot of work anxiety that I have. If um, some of the listeners are familiar with the Enneagram, which I'm guessing some of you are, I'm a pretty strong three. So there's that achiever, uh, a little bit of a, you know, wanting to impress other people, wanting other people to think well of me. So I will often have, right before I hit send on that kind of thing, um, a pretty healthy dose of what we call imposter syndrome, the sense that like, I, yeah, I guess I like wrote an okay article this time or maybe a while ago. And now people think that I can do this and wait until they find out that I just, I'm actually kind of a fraud and I can't, I can't actually write at all. Um, And it's like just constantly kind of waiting for the bottom to fall out and for someone to sort of pull back the curtain to mix metaphors and um, see that there's no one there uh, or that it's just someone pulling the strings. And I contend with that frequently. Um, And I think there's a, a large sense for me also of once I send something to be published, well, okay, now I need to figure out what the next thing is because I'm only as good as the last thing that I produced that's where my value comes from as a human being. And so if I haven't done something wonderful or astounding or something that's gone viral in a while, then um, I will start to feel down. Sometimes I notice in myself and feel like I really, you know, my, my worth is only as good as the last thing that I did. Um, and I think to that end, doing a lot of praying or sometimes after I send something in, um, thinking the thought of like having a, uh, this comes from, the late Dallas Willard, but thinking of having a balloon that I kind of just release into the air as like a sign that I am done with something and I can release the outcome has been helpful. So you've already alluded to this, so I think we know what your answer will be, but I'd like to dig in. 
We try to help our listeners begin the journey of gaining power over their anxiety by first noticing it physiologically. So we, we generally say it always begins in either a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. Where does it begin for you? Usually it's, it's the gut. I feel like I get that real sort of butterflies in my stomach feeling, and then it'll go other places, but that's often the first place I notice it. Yeah. And what are just a couple of your favorite tools to de-escalate anxiety? Mm. I, I've always really wanted to be someone who can take a few deep breaths and then it starts to go away. Um, but for some reason, that's just never quite done it for me. I think that can kind of slow things down um, and is helpful. But I usually need to either, if I can, like get moving and exercise. Um, I find that really helpful. If I've been, sometimes I notice if I've been inside for a long time, um, I just need to get outside. I need to be somewhere that I can see some trees. And, um, you know, I think for a lot of people with anxiety, being in nature is very helpful because there's just no judgment in nature. Um, it's just there to kind of take in and not achieve, but just soak up the beauty of a place like that. And so I find that helpful. Sometimes it's as simple as thinking, oh, I haven't eaten in a couple of hours, so I don't have any protein in my body and I'm starting to get shaky. And the feeling of not having protein is very similar to the feeling of anxiety. Um, so really often for me, it's, oh yeah, I need to, I need to eat something. Um, and then one of my favorite things to do, and I learned this from my dad when I was just a kid, um, was just to tell someone. So if I'm with someone that I can trust or if I can call or text someone, that I'm close with. And I have a few friends, um, who I kind of count on for this. I will just send them a note and say, Hey, I just need to let you know, I'm feeling really anxious right now. Um, and that usually kind of takes the edge off of things for me. It doesn't make the anxiety disappear, but telling people and never worrying alone is one of the most helpful tools that I have. Um, so much so that that, that phrase never worry alone. I have written kind of in different places throughout notebooks and um, taped up in my house so that I can see it. Because again, I think that that's where shame starts to come in and isolation. When for me, when I worry alone, I spin out. When I tell someone else, um, I start to feel quite a bit better. And I like how you said that it doesn't make it go away. It just, it sounds like it loosens its power or loosens its grip on you. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. Is it also true, Laura, um, that familiarity helps? Like you mentioned earlier in the, mm -hmm. in the interview, these worst case scenarios, these um, highly unlikely possibilities that you worry about. Mm -hmm. is, is it accurate that over time you, how do I word this, like you become more distrustful of those feelings? Um, I, I think that it's accurate that with time and work, I can become more distrustful of those feelings. I don't find that just time or just familiarity does that for me. Um, I think that it is the act of um, reframing thoughts. And I think that one thing that's interesting here, um, you know, you've talked and written a good deal about how anxiety manifests itself physiologically in our bodies. And um, one of the things that I think is important to notice with that is I've done, I've been to many different therapists in my life and have found it almost always incredibly helpful. But doing strictly cognitive behavioral therapy or 
I guess, more cognitive therapy for anxiety um, isn't always helpful for me because I don't find anxiety to be very rational. So it doesn't always respond to rational thought. Um, so when I say, you know, I'm, I'm worried that everyone in my family is going to die and everyone I love, I might respond to that in a cognitive way by saying, you know, this is incredibly unlikely. It will probably never happen, but I, I can't reduce all my fears down to 0%. Um, you know, the things I'm afraid of could happen and that's why I'm afraid of them. Um, I'm not afraid that, you know, dinosaurs are going to come back and a T-Rex will come and eat me. That's just not on my list. And it might be on yours or someone else's, but. Well, it, it wasn't until you are, mentioned yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll add it. Happy to add that one. Yeah. I mean, listen, the list is <laughs> yeah. long. You never know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that's where really the practice of acceptance has been so helpful to me to say, yeah, this thing worries me. It's probably not going to happen, but. Um, it's there. It's a concern that I have. And so what I can do is, uh, you know, kind of treat that anxiety like a really well-meaning but um, alarmist friend and say, okay, I see that you're here. You're welcome to come along with me while I go about the rest of my day. I accept you. I allow you um, to really integrate that whole part of who I am instead of trying to push it away. Uh, that's the work that that work plus time helps me not to be as afraid of certain thoughts. I really like that. That that reminds me, um, I can't put my finger on it, but you wrote an article that I read somewhere where you almost treat anxiety like a pet. Mm -hmm. I think you actually used the word pet, and that's what you're Probably. referring to now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have found that for me, and it may be different for different people, um, to be incredibly helpful because I think that, again, for me, doing the strictly cognitive stuff can feel like I'm not integrating the whole of who I am because part of, part of who I am is, you know, anxious. That's not the whole story, but that is there. And so trying to get rid of it, um, ends up giving me more and more anxiety as I try to rise in my energy to match my anxious thoughts. And I find that really uh, diffusing the anxiety is what is most helpful for me. So to diffuse it and to accept it and say, um, okay, I have this worry. I'm not, I'm not going to try to argue against it because that takes up so much mental energy. I'm going to say, I see you. I recognize this. I understand it. I'm going to try to have compassion on myself just like I would if a good friend came to me and told me what she was worried about. And then from there, I'm going to kind of welcome the anxiety like I would my little dog um, to sit next to me, to come with me, but not to take up all my mental energy. Yeah. If, if we could extend the metaphor, you have it on a leash. It doesn't have you around the throat. <laughs> that's, that's very good. Yeah. That's, I, that's a good visual. I think you're offering a real potential for a lot of freedom for people because I think what happens is people get anxious and then they, like you said, they go into shame. And that can be where it stops. But but for you to say it's it's like an ever-present companion, but you have mm -hmm. the power to, uh, through work, to um, manage its grip. And then you can actually get it in yeah. your grip. I think that's a really helpful tool for people who maybe feel stuck. Yeah, I find that to be um, very freeing. And again, it's probably, it, it's certainly work to do. It can be harder um, than it sounds and kind of constant, but 
it is, it has given me much more freedom than any kind of trying to meet, meet the anxiety tit for tat. Okay, one of our questions has to do with making mistakes because leaders and public figures, uh, their work is exposed, mm -hmm. you know, it's vulnerable. So tell us about a recent mistake you made and how you recovered from it. I was recently, this is a, you know, there are many to choose from. Um, I was writing, um, writing an article and had uh, kind of an outdated uh, an outdated version of what I was writing and sent it into the editor and had not done the, the fact checking that I needed to do, um, knew that I needed to do it and forgot about it. And so I ended up sending this article to my editor saying it was ready to go. It wasn't, but I started to panic once I realized that I had made the mistake of not updating it. It was some, some research that I needed to change. Um, and I spent gosh, probably the better part of a night laying awake thinking, um, if I tell this person that what I've sent in isn't accurate, they're going to think that I am, you know, the worst writer they've ever encountered. They're never going to want to work with me again. Um, they're going to talk about me and gossip about me to the rest of the editors. It's, you know, by the time I had gotten to the end of my spiral, my career was over and I was living in a box on the street. So that was a, a pretty quick A to B. Um, and I thought for a little bit, like, well, I could just kind of let this article be published and go up without the right information. It's possible that no one would notice. Um, and then I ended up, you know, kind of talking myself down a little bit and just responding to the editor with a quick note. And it was, it was just the most gracious and um, easy response that I could have imagined where I felt like I had worked myself up to a level 10 when in reality it was a level one. Um, that we make mistakes like this all the time. Um, but I, the level of shame that I got to so quickly felt really intense and panic oriented. Um, and I think reminding myself that I judge myself more harshly than anyone else around me does is one of the most helpful things I can do when I make a mistake. But, um, and I think that's very true for anxious people that we are our own worst critics. Um, but we do, before we even approach another person, we already are convinced that we're about to, you know, end up in prison. Yeah. And actually it's interesting that you mentioned, um, going from A to B super quickly, like you go from sending the article to living on a box in the street. Mm -hmm. Um, you also mentioned being up all night. So that makes me want to ask, do, do you think we go to A to B faster between 1am and 5am than we do? <laughs> between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m.? Totally. Totally. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I, I have yet to meet a person who's anxious who also like regularly gets a great night's sleep and doesn't occasionally at least wake up with panic in the middle of the night. And again, back to the physical stuff, one of the things I've learned is that our cortisol, which is one of our stress hormones, tends to peak um, often right around the time that we wake up in the morning or a little before that. So there are actual physical reasons for this, but then we also don't have the benefit of really seeing the outside world between 
1 a.m. and 5 a.m. For the most part, we are in bed. Um, we're either alone or if you have a partner that you're in bed with, it's probably not the best time to wake them up and, you know, ask them if they'll sit down and talk with you. Um, and so there's just a sense in which during the day I can see that the real world exists. I can see that my mistakes are fixable, that things will be fine. But at night, the only thing I can really see is the boundaries of my mind. Um, or are the and, and so what seems real to me in the night is very different than what seems real to me in the day. And that's where I think so many, you know, passages in scripture talking about um, bringing things into light, you know, can be very metaphorical, but also physically, like when the morning starts to come, when I can see the sun, I feel a sense of hope more than I do in the nighttime. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that same experience. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a hard left turn and talk about group anxiety uh, because, you know, a lot of time when you talk about anxiety, you just think about it as an internal thing in yourself. But family systems theory teaches us that anxiety is contagious in groups. So where have you seen anxiety be caught in a group the way someone catches a cold? Yeah, I, I love this idea. And I think that the way that you um, have written and talked about this is very helpful. And the family systems theory of sort of looking at anxiety uh, is so important. And so I think one of the places I see it in a smaller community, I think, is just within my marriage. Um, I'm married to a person who just really does not deal with anxiety much at all. But I really notice that when I am feeling more anxious and panicky, uh, Zach, my husband, will feel the need to sort of, um, again, rise his energy to meet my anxiety, to fix things that I feel anxious about, Um and so we will sort of go in this zigzag up and up and up and up to the point that he has worked himself up to be anxious as well, um, which neither of us want. So that's an area that I've seen it. And then I also certainly see it in um, institutions, as you point out and write about. I think that, you know, a lot of the the time that I've spent and the work that I've done in churches, um, there there are always people in churches who are kind of upholders of the status quo to the point that they don't want to engage in conflict because conflict can seem unchristian or not nice um, or too hard. And there's a great line in um, the the longer extended version of the serenity prayer that a lot of us are familiar with. Um, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the wisdom to change the things I can and the courage to know the difference. The longer version of it has a line in there that talks about accepting hardships as the pathway to peace. And in a lot of institutions, we want, well, in a lot of institutions and in a lot of life, we want peace without the hardship. Um, and I think that there's a lot of anxiety uh, in institutions uh, that we want to push down or not deal with. So I'm part of a church staff, um, or was until recently. Now I'm just kind of freelancing with our church in San Francisco. We went through, um, a really difficult and big decision about three and a half, almost four years ago, changing something related to our membership policy. And when that change happened, um, and a letter went out announcing it, it was just chaotic. And instead of sort of everybody being able to sit down together and reasonably talk about this is where the motivation is coming from. This is why we're making the change. Here's how we want to talk about it. Um, there was a lot of distress, a lot of chaos, a lot of assuming the worst about other people. Um, a number of people left the church. And that was 
a very hard time. And on the surface, we can point to, well, this change was made. And so I think that that's why everybody left. But underneath that, just thrumming beneath the surface was a really, really great deal of anxiety. What is my place in this church? How are decisions made? How am I a part of it? And how am I not a part of it? Why wasn't I asked? What does this mean for the future? There was just a lot of institutional anxiety there. And um, that led to a really, really difficult time. Yeah, unfortunately, that's an all too common story. Okay, so uh, probably my favorite question. Laura, when do you feel most fully loved in your life? I love that question. And um, I think it goes back to one of the things I mentioned about um, being in nature. Being in nature and being with the people I love is probably my best answer to that. Um, you know, I feel I feel loved when I am known and accepted for who I am. And that's very important. Um, particularly in my closest relationships. But there's something to be about moments when I'm somewhere beautiful and through that beauty, I can sense the work and the love of God, God's steadfast and, um, you know, ages old love, his creation. Um, And sharing that with people who I love is just one of the most sort of peaceful things that I can imagine. So those moments to me are really precious. Mm, Great. Okay. And then give us one activity and one place where you feel fully alive. I would say, um, the, the place, there are a few places that I can think of, but one of them would be, um, my husband's family has this, this really, really old rundown, beautiful rickety cottage in a lake called Fallen Leaf Lake. It's just south of Lake Tahoe. And um, at this point, I think there are like 18 different people who co-own it. It's, you know, it's a kind of Frankenstein, like it's been built onto ever since the 1940s. The green linoleum floors lead into some other wood floor place. And um, there's no internet there. You can't have a cell phone. It's just incredibly peaceful and beautiful. And the lake is just south of of Tahoe. Um, It's way too cold for me to ever want to go swimming in, but I can dip my feet in it. I can go hiking. Um, and I feel when I'm there that there's nothing expected of me except to enjoy the beauty of that place. And that's just an enormous gift. Um, so that is, that is a place where I feel very alive. And then activity wise, I really, I think that, um, this is going to kind of betray me for the book nerd that I am, but, but reading a good book, um, getting introduced to new thoughts or people who are very creative, um, thinking of the world in a new way. You know, there's something about that to me that connects deeply with, um, with our purpose, with identifying humanity across boundaries and different stories. Um, Marilyn Robinson is an author who does that for me. Her, her book Gilead is one of my favorites. Um, so when I read something like that and I think, you know, there's this incredibly creative mind who's also weaving theology and um, personal story together. I just, I feel like there's a deep sense of um, longing and fulfillment in me simultaneously. And that's a beautiful thing. For more resources, you can visit managingleadershipanxiety.com and download a free chapter of my upcoming book. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.